Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. comes from Proverbs 21, verse 17. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. If you think about it, this proverb is is fairly self-evident. Pleasures, pleasantries, and luxury are expensive. And the foolish pursuit of them is a quick way to waste your money. Nonetheless, the proverb is a necessary reminder that wealth is not automatic or a giving. You can inherit a fortune, or you can win the lottery, but money quickly slips through the fingers of the fool. The prodigal son leaves with a full wallet, but it only goes so far and he soon finds himself desiring the pods that the pigs eat. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man, and he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. This proverb also points to the temporary nature of the pleasures of this world. Nothing is certain, and nothing is permanent. The world is fallen, and that means that it, the world, and everything in it has an expiration date. It's a fool who mistakes the pleasures of this life for permanent good. It's a fool who doesn't recognize the greater power behind the mists of this life, who doesn't fear God and learn to walk in His ways. The selfish pursuit of vanity is all grasping for the wind, and God will judge us all. Fortunately, His creation works by the principles, by His principles and His laws. And as this proverb points out, that means that We can learn these principles and laws by the consequences of the choices we make, even in the things as mundane as pleasures and finances. Diligence, patience, and wisdom are rewarded, while selfishness, laziness, and greed are punished. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. Our text this morning is Psalm 118, but the reason that this is our text is because this is the the, the psalm that that was quoted in the Palm Sunday passages in the Gospels. In the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when when Jesus was was coming down on, on the donkey, which we just read, and the crowds cried out to Jesus. They said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That These words are quotes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Now, the word Hosanna 
is actually a, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, which is Oshiana. And it means, save us now, we pray. Save us now, we pray. Um, that's what Hosanna means. And in and, and Hosanna, this, these, this psalm, Psalm 118, became a hymn. And so uh, it, the, the Hebrew culture was, was a rich culture, and part of their culture was, was singing of hymns and liturgical music. Like we do every Sunday when we come and we sing the Gloria Patri, and and it's like it, the Hebrews had had songs like that where they would sing liturgical hymns at different times of the of their church year of their seasons. So they're singing in praise on Palm Sunday with spontaneous praise, but it was scripted spontaneity. They were prepared for worship by their regular worship. It was the fruit of a culture of scripture and worship. The words quoted were a selection from a song they sang, which is called the Hallel. And it consists of, of, of Psalms 113 all the way through to Psalm 118. And it was sung as the people were ascending the hill to the temple, particularly at the Feast of Tabernacles, but it was also sung at the other feasts. And, and they even divided the Hallel up and sang different parts of it around the, the, the Passover meal. And so Psalm 118 would be sung right after the end of the Passover meal. And verses 25 and 26, where they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were specifically messianic. They were associated with the Hebrew scriptures and the, and the promises of a Messiah. And the Jews, they would wave palm branches as, a, as expressions of exuberation and jubilation when they came to these verses in the psalm as they were walking up the hill to the, to the, uh, to the temple. So they would be singing the words of the psalm, and when they got to Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they would start waving their palm branches. So this proclamation to Jesus on Palm Sunday as... Uh, as uh, and at the triumphal entry, as, as Jesus was, was riding the donkey in a stately procession, a, a royal procession, was a clear indication that the crowds were looking to him as a Messiah for the grace of God. They were looking to Jesus for salvation. Save us, we pray, O Lord. And Psalm 118, in the context of these words, is a declaration of confidence in God and in his salvation in the midst of a desperate need. So we're going to be reading our text in just a second. And well, that's, that's what's next. Let's, let us read our text. And I'm not reading the whole psalm. I'm starting at verse 15. Psalm 118, 15 to the end, verse 29. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There's a lot going on here in this, in this psalm. But first, I'd like to draw attention to the fact that this psalm sets us on the right track. It's a, it, it sets us on the right track while we are in the midst of our desperate need. Notice the bittersweet textures of sure faith mixed with the desperate need for salvation. The psalm is, is a song of a people of faith. Their faith is, is, reading the words of this psalm, it's very clear that these people are looking to God for salvation. They trust Him. They're the recipients of, of God's promises, and they believe these promises. But the words of the text are clear that the singer knows his need for God's grace. We see this in God's sanctions. The Lord has chastened me severely, verse 18. In the New Testament, the author tells us that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. The Lord has chastened me severely. We see that the, the, this, the need of the singer in the failures of men, the stone which the builders have rejected. Men have not, they have not, the men have not accomplished God's salvation. We see his need in the humility that is necessary for one to call out for salvation. Save now, I pray, O Lord. And similarly, we see it in the recognition of a need for a sacrifice. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar, verse 27. So the psalmist knows he is in desperate need of salvation. And this knowledge... The knowledge of our need and desperation is the necessary first step for salvation. This is why the gospel always starts with revelation. Verse 28 of our text reads, God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the, horns, the, the, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. God is the Lord and he has given us light. God has given revelation. The problem is that we are not perfect. We are sinners, and God is holy. His light burns us. We need a sacrifice in order to have peace with God. We cannot come before Him without, being, without needing His destruction. And this was true for the crowds at the triumphal entry. Though God's revelation wasn't complete yet, they were desperate for salvation. They needed a deliverer. They wanted a Messiah. So they came, and Jesus was, was coming to town. 
This is what Jesus came for. He came to bring healing to the sick and the blind and the lame and the deaf and the dumb. Remember when John said to his, his, his disciples, he said, are you the coming one? He says, look, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, the captives are set free. Jesus came to relieve the oppressed. And he just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and all, of the, all of the town was talking about this. Everybody knew that there was a great prophet from Nazareth who was coming. And they were looking to him for salvation. His fame was spreading far and wide. And this is why the crowds came to see him, raising their palm branches and, and, and yelling, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. But it's also, this, this fame of Jesus, his coming as a Messiah, is also why the Pharisees and the scribes were uncomfortable with him. When, when the, the Pharisees and the, scribe heard, the scribes heard that Jesus was coming, in fact, in the, in the Gospel of John, just before the narrative of the triumphal entry, the scribes and the Pharisees are talking amongst themselves, and they're saying, Look, the whole world has gone after him. Look, he's raising people from the dead. And then Caiaphas makes his, his famous proclamation. It's, it's not expedient that, that the whole nation should perish for him. It's, it's expedient that one man should perish for the nation. And so they plotted against him. And when Jesus came, and the crowds came, and they, he was, they were worshiping him, they challenged his authority. They said, Master, Teacher, silence your disciples. And Jesus boldly proclaimed, He said, if they were to be quiet, the stones themselves would break forth in praise. And yet, the, the Pharisees and the scribes were not able to see this. And, and Jesus, is what he's doing is he's fulfilling the words of the psalm. The words of the Psalm 118, He is the true Messiah. The crowds have got it right for once. They're worshiping God the way they are supposed to. And they challenge us, but when, they when, the, when the Pharisees challenge Jesus, He explains to them that He's fulfilling the Psalm. And He does it in short order. The Gospel of John tells us that the triumphal entry took place five days before the Passover. Jesus went to Jerusalem, the crowds praised him, and immediately after this, Jesus goes forth and he cleanses the temple. He exercises authority. He says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Then he goes and he withers the fig tree as a sign against the Israelites, because it was an unfruitful nation. God would take away their place. And then he goes and gives them the parable of the vineyard owner who has these wicked servants who come in. And he sends somebody to gather the proceeds and they, and they treat him shamefully. He sends another guy and they beat him. And they, they, he sends another guy and they kill him. And finally he sends his own son and they kill him. And the Pharisees and the scribes understand that this is a proclamation against them. This is a lawsuit that Jesus is bringing against them for failing to honor and worship and serve God. And in that context, he says, 
That's what the stone the builders rejected was. That's what it's talking about. It's you killing me. That's the stone the builders rejected. And from that point on, they go and they actively scheme to kill him. And they, and they get Judas to betray him. They go and they try and catch him up in his words. They, try, they send spies in that are acting like disciples. And they want to ask him questions that will get him in trouble. So they ask him about taxes. And they, they ask him about whether there's going to be marriage in heaven. Things that are complex issues. And he answers them with the simplest wisdom and the most clear instruction that points them always to God. And always denies them what their goal is. He foils their schemes. And yet their need for him was just as great as the crowd's need for him. The difference between the builders who reject the Messiah and the crowds who sought him is that the crowds recognize in humility their desperate need for salvation. They cry out to God for peace and for grace. And the need for salvation is great. We are dead in our sins. We have no hope outside of God. But the psalmist's faith is even greater than that in God. He trusts in God. And this is evident in the glorious nature of God's song in Psalm 118. The psalmist is certain of God's redemption. And we see this in two ways. First, the psalmist remembers the salvation that God has already provided. He remembers what God has done. Earlier in the psalm, the, the part we didn't read, um, he cites how the Lord rescued him from his adversaries and from the nations and from his enemies. God had delivered him. They had surrounded him, and God had given him victory over them. In verse 18, he says, The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The psalmist remembers that God has already saved him and God is faithful and he's promised to save him. But second, he pro proclaims that, that faithfulness of God and, that, and, he, and, he, and he grasps onto the promises of God. He says in verses 16 and 17, The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. In verse 20, This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. And next we see that he's seeking more than just status quo. The psalmist isn't looking just to get by. In verse 25 he says, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Send now prosperity. The psalmist doesn't just have faith in a God who saves us from destruction. He has faith in a God who promises overwhelming blessing. And finally, both of these aspects, the fact that God has already saved him and God promises to be good, are appropriately bound together with the, the psalmist's extreme gratitude and praise. And this is evident throughout the text. It's all about expressing gratitude, thanksgiving to God, and praise to God, because God is the God of salvation. He is God. And of course, this correlates divinely with the triumphal entry of Jesus into the gates of Jerusalem. 
Remember, I just read, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. Here we have the triumphal entry. And we have the truly righteous one. And here he is coming to the gates to enter. Jesus is coming to the gates. Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, which the people had longed for and prayed for and hoped for and looked for. These psalms, these hymns, sung by generations of faithful Israelites, were meeting their fulfillment here in A.D. 30, as all the types and the shadows of the Old Testament were pointing to this man and this time. God was sending his salvation at last. Finally, God was saving his people. The builders were truly rejecting the cornerstone here. Here, God was binding the true sacrifice to the horns of the altar. In all of this, God was completely accomplishing so much more than what they imagined. The Jews had a very nationalistic view of salvation. But God is accomplishing the redemption of all mankind. He has a global view. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His mercy does endure forever. In all this song, and in the New Testament, and in the narrative of Palm Sunday, there's a deep sense of already, not yet. Already, not yet. Throughout Psalm 118, the psalmist alternates between proclamations of praise for salvation already enjoyed and already anticipated, and he alternates between that and coming salvation, deeply yearned for, a recognition of our need, our desperate need of salvation. So it's already accomplished, it's not yet accomplished. Yet, this is mirrored in the experience of our Lord at the, at the triumphal entry. Imagine our Lord, he's coming, he's, he's been ministering for, for three, four years now, in a public ministry, he's been, he's been practicing miracles, he's been, he's been confounding all opposers, he's raising people from the dead, he's training his disciples, he's sending them out by twos, he's, he's gaining notoriety and fame, he's, he's, he's coming into Jerusalem. At the Passover, as the promised Messiah of the scriptures, the thing that the Jews have been looking for all their life. And he comes boldly proclaiming the salvation that the gospel proclaims. Boldly proclaiming the promises of Psalm 118. Save now, I pray, O Lord. Send now prosperity. We have the proclamation of the crowds that Jesus is the Messiah. We have their treatment of him as royalty. He is God. He is the King of Kings. And yet, we know that the crowds later that week would turn on him. That the builders would be given their moment in the sun when they would crush him and murder him, beat him and spit on him. Cruelly mock him. And then these things were on the doorstep. Three, four, five days away. And Jesus knew this. Here he's coming into his own. 
to his, his city, his people. And they're worshiping him as God. And yet we have his knowledge of this coming trial. The suffering. We have the rejection of the Pharisees. We have the clear manifestation of Jesus in his miracles and his witness. And yet we see his shameful treatment by men. And in this way, Palm Sunday has the same bittersweet tang that the psalm does. We have the praise and the glory of God, and yet the desperate need for God's salvation. Jesus himself called out to God for salvation on the cross. Why, oh why, hast thou forsaken me? So this is a pungent point in history. It's a strong picture. And, and it, 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 there's some things for us to learn here. And the first thing that we need to learn here is that salvation always starts with humility. We must recognize our emptiness, our deficiency. We must drop our pride and our arrogance. We must look to God. We, we need His revelation. He needs to intervene in our story. We need to know that we are not good enough without Him. We can't save ourselves. And when we look to Him and, his, and we see His light, it reveals our sin. When we read His Word and, and we understand how holy and how pure He is, and how far we fall short of his perfection, we're left with nothing less than a confession of our sin in the light of that revelation. Turn to God as the only source of salvation. Give up your pride and arrogance. Be like the crowd and not like the Pharisee. Cry out, Hosanna, save now, I pray. Don't get in his way and ask him to stop the crowds. Don't think that he is taking what is not his due. Because all things are his due. The next thing we see after humility is that we need to sing this song. We need to sing these words. This needs to, these words need to be the words of our life. We need to have faith. We need to trust in God. We need His Word. Because His Word and His promises are true. His Word tells us that He loves us. And His gifts are real. Accept the gifts He offers. Recognize that salvation. The song, the, psalmist, the, the song that the psalmist is singing is not salvation by the skin of your teeth. That's not the kind of salvation that God's giving us. We're not just barely hanging on by a fingernail. God's promises are overwhelming. Accept the gift. His promises, His gift, it's not insipid, it's not limp, it's not weak. It's, it's full, it's strong, and it's, it's hearty. The gospel is full and vibrant. Oh Lord, I pray... Send now prosperity. Our God is good. 
And because He's good, He desires to bless us. He loves to shower His people with grace. So sing the psalm, have faith, accept His gift, and rejoice then in the salvation that's freely offered. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's verse 24 of our text. If we sing the song, we can't help but have faith because we're proclaiming God's word and he reveals to us it's true. We can't help but accept the gift because he gives us the yearning and the desire for it because we know that it's good. We can't help but return with joy and rejoicing and then thanksgiving for the salvation that he's given already and the salvation that he promises to give in the times ahead. And this is very important because it puts us in the right stead. It puts us in the right place. It gives us the right perspective for the already not yet nature of the world we live in. Okay, so we're saved. You, you, you believe in the gospel. You accept Jesus Christ. You receive his spirit. You're saved. Praise God. Rejoice. Give thanks. In that spirit, in the spirit of faith, rejoicing, and thanksgiving... You can face this dark world with faith, hope, and love. Because salvation happens in time. It doesn't, it, it's, it's not like Jesus died, the cross, and now everybody's instantly in heaven. Period. The end. That's not, it's a story. It has progression. God is unchanging and permanent. His word will not fail, and it is eternal, and we can have faith in that. But we do it in a world where it's not fully accomplished yet. All the people that he wants to save haven't been born yet. God, when he sent the Israelites into the land to take over, he left the nations that they were fighting against so that they could learn to fight against them. He's teaching us in the midst of this. God is using time for our blessing. So we can proclaim his promises and we can take solace in his covenant despite the temporary setbacks we experience in this life. So we suffer. So there are hardships. So there are wisdom issues that we have to solve. Yes. And amen. Yes. That's part of life. But God promises the victory. He promises us grace. And what we need in order to accomplish that victory is faith, rejoicing, and thanksgiving. So the Israelites would sing the Halal in the midst of exile or in oppression. They, here they were, in, in their own land, occupied by the Romans, singing the Hallel, expressing their faith in God. Because the faithful are called to rejoice and give thanks when we're in a world of sin and the depths of need. But that faith is possible because we know how the story ends. God promised us, and he... He's shown it to us. We've already seen the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ. We have a glimpse, so we know how our God works, the, the fashion in which he works, and by faith we can attain to his promises and his gospel. 
And that means that we need to trust God in the meantime. And it's okay if things are hard to see in the, in, in the, in the meantime, in the, in the interim times. You know, when we die, and when we go to be in God's presence, and when we see Jesus as he really is, and all the smoke and mirrors are gone, and we rejoice, and we understand, and we worship God like he calls us to for all eternity, praise God, we look forward to that. In the meantime, it's okay if we don't see it as clearly as we ought, because God's working in it. We can trust in his sovereignty as we're fighting against sin, as we're fighting against the ravages of this world, of death, illness, and sickness, and broken relationships. We can trust in God. Our salvation's already complete, though not finished. Revelation is progressive. God is the God of time and means, and he ordains processes. He oversees outcomes, and we must trust him that he's good. We have no other alternative. We don't have the whole story, but we, we have what we need, and what we need is him. We need Jesus, and that's what he gives us. We already see him, but not as we shall. We have what we need, and that's faith. We have the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We have faith in Jesus. He's revealed himself in his word, in our community, and in the world. And this gives us hope for the establishment of his kingdom and for the future of our lives and our world. We're not left without hope. And that hope strengthens our love so that we can go forth in obedience and obey God's commands. Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And what's that? Love God and love each other. So though we live in the midst of already not yet, we're gloriously blessed with the tools we need for that. Faith, hope, and love. Because God is good. And I leave you one more time with the words of the crowds. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. place in the church calendar. We're in the season of Lent. Traditionally, it's a time to reflect on the sufferings of Christ in his life and ministry. And yet here on Palm Sunday, we're given a glimpse of his glory as he rides into Jerusalem, worshipped and hailed by the crowds for who he truly is, our King, coming to save us all. Palm Sunday points to the hope we all have in dark times. When we are brought low, our God is there with us. As Jesus prepares to go through the betrayal and darkness of Passion Week, God reminds us that He is God, and His plan for our salvation is sure, and His covenant promises are true and good and merciful. When the crowds chant the words of Psalm 118, we are all reminded of our need for grace and God's gracious promise to provide it. 
Here now as we come to remember the sacrifice of our Lord at this table, it is good for us to call out to him in faith, Hosanna to the Son of David. Save now, we pray, O Lord. It is also good for us to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For God has truly blessed him. He's raised him from the dead. He's given him all authority in heaven and earth. And so that here we are, some 2,000 years later, faithfully coming to worship and adore him, filled with his grace and his spirit, humbly beseeching his blessings as Lord of lords and King of kings, the only source of life and grace and truth. The body of our Lord, broken for us, let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.